Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Kashmir Helm. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the morning of Tuesday, April 9th. And first of all, I'd like to welcome my co-host today, who is Kashmir Hill. She's an investigative reporter at Gizmodo who's been digging into privacy and technology conundrums for many years. Kashmir, thanks for co-hosting. Thanks for having me as a guest host. (laughs) Yeah, super fun. So on today's show, we're going to talk about a British proposal to regulate content on social media sites. And then we'll talk about Kashmir's recent investigation into Airbnb's efforts to kick white nationalists off its platform ahead of a national summit in Tennessee. After that, we'll talk to Pat Brown, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods, to talk about his eerily realistic fake meat that's trying to pitch a sustainable alternative to the environmentally destructive meat industry. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we're going to start by discussing some news that came out Sunday that U.K. regulators shared. Uh, It's a new proposal that would require social media companies like Facebook and YouTube from Google to be much faster and more proactive about removing harmful content on their platform. The proposal is very wide-ranging. It covers ensuring news presented isn't rife with misinformation, um, combating hate speech, uh, cyberbullying, Child exploitation. What else? Like uh, extreme violence, like what we saw in New Zealand. Right. And this isn't the first country to do this. In Germany last year, there was a measure that was passed uh, that could charge companies up to $60 million if they don't delete illegal content quickly. Um, and then in Australia last week, are you familiar with this? Uh, they uh, passed uh, a law that uh, says that uh, social media executives could actually be put in jail if content isn't removed quickly enough. Yeah, and this isn't entirely new. I remember years ago Mm -hmm. that YouTube executives um, were going to be arrested if they went to Italy because there was a YouTube video of a kid being bullied um, that they wanted taken down. So uh, it's not exactly new, but it does seem like governments around the world are very interested in regulating the tech companies right now. Yeah, and I mean— Mark Zuckerberg even said that he's open to some form of, you know, speech and content regulation to be uh, put on Facebook from from U.S. regulators, uh, which might run into some thorny First Amendment issues. I haven't read the whole 100-page white paper from the U.K. Parliament, um, and this is from Damian Collins, who is the same, um, the same lawmaker who seized all of those documents from the lawsuit against Facebook and, and made those public. He's been very interested in um, going after Facebook. Uh, it's a 100-page white paper with a lot of ideas in it about regulating them. I've only read the three-page executive summary. But it seemed kind of like uh, basically the U.K. wants to eliminate, you know, the kind of Section 230 protections that tech companies have in the U.S. where, you know, as a publisher of information, you're not responsible for what your users do. And I think the U.K. is saying we want the tech companies to be more responsible 
responsible for what their users are doing. Uh, so it would be a real turnabout from the way that U.S. law works. And this principle in the U.S. that tech companies are not liable for what users post has really allowed Internet companies to grow into the mammoths that they are. Because, you know, who would want to invest in a company in the in the 90s or in the early aughts if they could get sued for whatever, you know, any random person said on their platform? It kind of gave the these companies the security to get large investments and, and to grow these big platforms. It also gave them sec- the security to kind of look the other way when their platforms were being used for hate. Uh, so this is all kind of boiling over now, at least in a cascade of different countries. One thing that the UK proposal does is, is suggest the creation of a new regulatory agency in the country to help ensure that companies, you know, comply which I, I just can't even imagine how compliance are, are really looking. <laughs> I mean, these companies can't regulate themselves. They, there's just too much content being produced all the time. I think it was like 1.5 million copies of the video of the, the massacre in New Zealand uh, in the first day after it, uh, the first 24 hours after it happened, uh, was uh, removed from Facebook, right? I mean, it's just a, a mammoth undertaking. Yeah, I, um, you know, I just think that increasingly, I mean, there are horrible things that are happening in in the world, and we see them reflected through the prism of technology companies because this is how these things are being captured and spread. And um, I, th- I think that lawmakers are just hoping there's a way to stop it if they can get, you know, uh, tech companies to come up with the right filter, um, uh, the right, you know, the right kind of ban, but. It's going to be hard. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be critical of this proposed regulation. Um, But I feel like a little bit like we're Goldilocks, where every time government proposes some new regulation, we're like, well, this one is too broad. And this Mm -hmm. one, uh, we don't know what the unintended consequences are going to be. And so it's I think it's very hard to to come up with regulation everyone thinks is perfect. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to fix something, you know, after the toothpaste is kind of already out of the tube. And it's it's really difficult. Uh, in the U.S., there's not like a proposal sitting on the shelf that people are, are really rallying behind. But there was a hearing this morning in the House Judiciary Committee uh, about kind of hate groups, use of Facebook and YouTube uh, and how the kind of the social media sites have dealt with them. And we've seen a number of you know, hearings where lawmakers have brought up this issue, uh, but but there's really no hard proposal that uh, that's being pulled off the shelf and that people are kind of uh, rallying behind, like I said. So, you know, who knows how the U.S. is going to address this? One thing that people have brought up is, of course, just limiting the power of these companies by making them smaller, which would be an antitrust action. But again, there's still not really a hard proposal that people uh, are, are able to, to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to execute antitrust. And antitrust is just so underused in the U.S. It's such an atrophied policy that I don't think people even know where to start, or at least lawmakers don't even seem sure of, of how, to, how they would begin such a proceeding. Yeah, I, I don't know what we're going to see. I feel like in the U.S. it usually comes through either the idea that we'll have privacy legislation, mm-hmm. that there's this big push right now to pass a big privacy bill um, in part to undermine the the pretty strong privacy law that was passed here in California, or this idea of um, antitrust action. And we've seen it with uh, in in presidential proposals of people yes. that are running uh, who say, let's break up the tech companies. Um as to what that will actually look like, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure yet. 
Well, we are going to keep following this, but uh, one story that I I really want to talk about is one that you reported and was published last Friday about Airbnb, which is a company I don't get to, we don't really get to discuss that much because we're always talking about Facebook and and YouTube and Google and Twitter. Uh, And Airbnb, which uh, is planning an IPO this year, uh, is also trying to get rid of white nationalists as well. And so last Friday, you posted a story with Dhruv Marotra on Gizmodo about how Airbnb is struggling to keep white nationalists from using its platform. Forum, specifically this time around the American Renaissance Conference, a gathering that attracts hundreds of white nationalists every year. It was taking place in Middle Tennessee this year. And y'all looked at some leaked communications of the event planning from the independent investigative group Unicorn Riot and found that while some hotels were suggested for lodging, Many coming were also booking Airbnbs, meaning they were staying in people's homes. Now, I know that if I rented out an Airbnb, I would not feel comfortable having members of hate groups staying in my home. What happened when you told Airbnb about this? Yeah, so Airbnb during Charlottesville and Unite the Right, you know, did say that they had a ban on white nationalists and that they didn't want them using the platform. You know, Airbnb has this whole non-discrimination policy that was developed in part because there was racism that was happening on the platform where certain guests and certain hosts were being judged or not uh, um, allowed in people's homes because of race. And so Airbnb's stance is that white nationalists violate its non-discrimination policy and it doesn't want them on the platform. So we went and told them about American Renaissance and they said, oh, you know, they were really alarmed and they basically started a whole investigation to see, uh, you know, whether people had booked Airbnbs um, and also you know, looking for people that were connected to the conference. And so they wound up canceling some reservations and kicking some people off of Airbnb, um, including Faith Goldie, who's a Canadian um, woman who's been called the white nationalist poster girl, um, who then complained that she had been kicked off because she said she had a really great record on Airbnb of being a great guest and very clean and very respectful. Um, But it was interesting because Airbnb has said, you know, much like uh, Facebook and Instagram, that it has a ban now on white nationalists using the platform. But it didn't seem like Airbnb was actually doing anything to look for these people until we came and told them about a conference. But this conference isn't an underground conference. No. This conference has been happening for years. It's it's controversial in Tennessee because the state park in Tennessee is hosting a group of known white nationalists every year and protesters come. Um, so it's not unknown. Uh, Faith Goldie has had big stories written about her. She's in the news a lot. She's in the news yeah. a lot. Um, so it just it, it seemed that Airbnb wasn't proactively looking for these people. Um, but it will act if it's brought to their attention. And so I, I think it just raises this question of once these companies do create a ban, how far do we expect them to go in enforcing it? Yeah. And I mean, does that mean that they have to kind of keep a calendar of when there are going to be big hate gatherings around the country? You know, it's 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 very hard to know the political leanings of everyone that uses your platform, especially if it's not a place where people are actively talking about their politics. But it seems that it is possible to kind of know when these convergences, at least the more public ones, are happening and and then kind of see if all of a sudden there's a bunch of rooms being rented in places where people aren't typically vacationing, like where I'm from, where this conference is happening. In Middle Tennessee, um, outside of Nashville, where uh, where I don't think most people go for fun. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, and it's, you know, you can ask the same question of hotels, mm-hmm. um, but hotels don't have the same amount of information about their right. guests that Airbnb has. Um, and an Airbnb is something different. You are bringing hosts together with guests. And so I do think it puts a, a special um, requirement on the company to make sure that's a safe interaction. We're talking about bringing people into your home. I mean, it's not just renting out your whole house when you're not there, but like uh, renting out a room while you're there. You know, do you want to be harboring someone that is actively, you know, facilitating or, or being a member of a hate group? Many of these groups are, are known to to be violent or at least, you know, actively practicing racism and anti-Semitism. Um, so, yeah, Airbnb does have responsibility when we're talking about letting people into the home. Uh, but this is kind of something that they have to do on their own. There's no law that says they have to do this. It's just that if they have these rules, what does monitoring look like? Um, it doesn't seem like they're doing that much monitoring right now. I mean, do they have a team dedicated to this? Did they tell you anything about their kind of methodology for assessing this out? They didn't want to tell us too much about their okay. methodology because they say, oh, well, then that tells the bad guys what we do. Mm-hmm. So then it would allow, you know, people in the future to circumvent whatever we're doing to keep people off the platform that we don't want. But it did seem like it was basically falling with the trust and safety team. Um, but, yeah, they wouldn't go into exactly how they do what they do. They have a lot of vague posts about, um, you know, th- they do background checks. They look at all these signals, um, uh-huh. machine learning, yada, yada, blah, yada. Blah, blah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it was funny. I mean, we also uh-huh. called because there were two, there were four hotels that were recommended as accommodations if the, you know, the inn at the state park filled up. And so I called them and asked, you know, how do you feel about mm-hmm. white nationalists staying in your hotel? And they were just like, well, we don't ask people while th- why they're here. And all we ask for is their ID. And as long as they don't, you know, cause a ru- ruckus in the lobby, you know, we don't discriminate against anyone. So Airbnb is certainly has a, a higher standard than other hotels that are in the area. But I think that they should, again, because they have a, a special you know, model. Uh, They're moderating letting people into your home. They're kind of like, or mediating that. You know, and it, it was, I think it was in 2016 when the hashtag, and you mentioned this earlier, Airbnb while black really kind of went viral on Twitter. Um, and it was a place where black users using that hashtag were recounting their experiences being denied places to stay even when the listings were marked as open. Um, and so Airbnb has definitely dealt with um, people using their platform to, to, to act racist. Right. Okay, well, I really recommend uh, the story in Gizmodo that we're talking about. It's entitled, Airbnb Doesn't Want White Nationalists on Its Platform, But How Hard Is It Looking for Them? Really well written and reported. And next, we're going to talk to Pat Brown, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods, which makes the Impossible Burger, which we tried right before recording this podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Our guest today is Pat Brown, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. Pat Brown, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so we wanted to talk a bit uh, with you about your company, Impossible Foods, and the Impossible Burger that you all make. And this is especially in light of the fact that animal industries are a leading cause of climate change. This is a near-universally accepted uh, premise and was outlined clearly in the UN's more recent report on the environmental crisis. Grazing takes up about two-thirds of the world's agricultural land. A third of that comes from deforestation. Then the cattle that graze release gases as well. So it's really not good for the environment all around that is eating meat and producing meat, uh, particularly beef, and it's not sustainable either. There have been meat alternatives for many years, but Impossible Burger and other more recent lab-made protein products aim to truly mimic meat. Uh, and of course, your company is bolstered by nearly 400 million in venture capital. Uh, Kashmir and I just tasted an Impossible Burger. It wasn't my first time. It was my second or third, but it was... Uh, Kashmir's first time. And I, you liked it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, April had to buy it last night, and yes. then we warmed it up in the microwave. But oh, no. Well, we had to—it wasn't had to, for sale this morning anywhere. <laughs> but I have to say, it was delicious um, and so much better, I think, than a regular burger that had sat in a refrigerator overnight. Uh, it is incredibly meat-like, and the flavor was really good. I, I'm not currently a vegetarian, but I was a vegetarian for seven years, and I do not remember vegetarian burgers tasting that good. Uh, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I also like them. I am a uh, vegetarian, maybe more of a flexitarian, but tend to eat uh, very vegetarian. And I, I like them. I think that they taste pretty much like real burgers. And I'm not even looking for something that tastes like a real burger because it's not something I miss. But it is something that's delicious. <laughs> and uh, and it is kind of nice to, to get that back a bit. Um, and so, you know, what is how, how are you able to get them to taste so meat-like? Well, I think... First thing to understand is that the company was not founded to create a better veggie burger. The goal of the company, the mission of the company when it was founded is to completely replace animals in the food system by 2035, sooner if possible, and to do so by creating meat, fish, and dairy foods without using animals that are better in every way that matters to the consumers of those products. Um, that was something that's never been the premise of any company that's made meat alternatives before. Um, they have always sort of viewed their target market as people who are looking for an alternative. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in people who are looking for an alternative. We're, we're interested in making products that outperform in deliciousness, in nutritional value, uh, you have to get the flavors and the aromas right. You have to get the texture, the juiciness, the way it performs in the kitchen and so forth. But pretty much the reason that meat tastes unlike anything from the plant world is that meat contains very high levels of a molecule called heme. So you can take a bunch of uh, simple nutrients that uh, can come from a plants or an animal or, or pretty much any cell that are amino acids, sugars, fats, and so forth. They're not animal-specific. And if you were to cook them together, you'd get some very mild, savory, sort of like vegetable broth type of taste. If you throw in heme, bang, it turns into meat. Heme is the catalyst that catalyzes the chemical reactions that take these simple common nutrients and produce hundreds of volatile aroma and flavor compounds that add up to the you know, unique um, characteristic aroma and flavor profile of meat. 
So what is heme, though? I, I, that's what I'm confused about. Is it are you getting it from soy? Well, heme is found in every living cell on Earth, pretty much. It's essential for every cell and every plant. It's essential for every cell and every animal. It's part of the core mechanism by which cells generate uh, burn calories to generate energy. So that's something that we didn't discover. That's been known for, for many years. And heme is also familiar um, probably to a lot of people as the molecule that carries oxygen in your blood. Um, delivers oxygen from your lungs to your tissues and so forth, um, and and also gives your blood its red color. And animal tissues, um, it's sort of obvious, they contain a lot more uh, heme, like orders of magnitude more heme than a typical plant, even though plants need heme. And this explosion of flavor and aroma that's unlike anything you'll ever see when you're cooking uh, um, something plant-based. That's all due to the catalytic activity of heme. And it, it really is true. I mean, when you eat the burger, it tastes like meat. Ours didn't bleed, but if I didn't know better, I would have thought I was eating a meat burger. But how do you guys actually develop the heme that you're putting in your burgers? Yeah, so the heme-containing protein in our burgers um, is naturally found in the root nodules of soybeans. Um, it's virtually identical to the heme-containing molecule in animal muscle tissue, which is part of the reason that we cho chose this one. Um, for all sorts of reasons, it's actually just incredibly difficult to um, isolate in clean form these, these tiny little parts of soybean roots from tons and tons of dirt and uh, uh, was completely unscalable. So then what we did was we took the gene from the soybean plant that encodes this heme protein and transferred it into, into yeast cells um, and basically optimize the yeast cells. So the yeast cells are naturally able, able to produce heme, but uh, what we did was we um, sort of amplified their ability to produce tons of heme, and we introduced this um, plant protein that uh, binds the heme and uh, sort of releases it upon cooking, you might say. So that seems like a really expensive process. So, you know, the burgers that I, the Impossible Burgers that I bought yesterday were $15 each. I know that the Whopper that's for sale now in Missouri is just a dollar more than a meat Whopper. It's just a really high price point, though. I, I mean, I don't know why the Whoppers are so much cheaper than the Impossible Burger that I'm buying at restaurants in Oakland. But uh, but talk to us yeah, a bit about how much question. it costs because it, I just can't imagine that the process that you just described is is very cost efficient. Actually, it is. And it's not only cost efficient, it's vastly more resource efficient in terms of its environmental impact than um, producing heme by covering the planet with cows. Um, but it, from a cost standpoint, it's actually interesting that as a you know, general principle, if you can produce something using a lot less resources and with a smaller environmental footprint, it's highly likely to be cheaper when it's at scale. So um, at scale, our production process should be considerably less expensive than the um, producing the same things using an animal. And I would be reasonably confident that within two or three years, um, our cost of production will have fallen below the cost of production of the animal equivalents. Fundamentally, our economics are better. We, because we use less land, we use 4% the land, we use about a tenth the water, 
We use um, less than a tenth the fertilizer inputs um, and a fraction of all the other inputs that go into producing meat from a cow. It's just a matter of getting to scale before your, um, your product is cheaper. And that's what we're focusing on right. right now is scaling up as fast as possible. So unlike other vegetarian burger companies, your target audience isn't vegetarians. You're trying to target meat eaters. So what has your strategy been to try to convince people that they should be eating Impossible Burgers instead of the the regular kind? Um, We know, based on tons of data, that meat lovers love meat because of its unique, delicious flavor, its nutritional value, protein content and iron and stuff like that, um, its familiarity, convenience, and affordability. Not because of the fact that it's made from the cadaver of an animal, but in spite of the fact that it's made from the cadaver of an animal. And we have very good data that hardcore meat lovers, this is true across every corner of the U.S. and the world, um, if you can deliver the deliciousness and the affordability and those things that consumers, the nutritional value, the things that consumers value in meat and make it from plants, they would actually value it more because meat lovers love their meat, but they don't love how it's made. They just live with how it's made. And um, try, so, I think most of the time they try to ignore how it's made. Yeah, I think I think they just don't want to think about it. <laughs> they don't want to think about it, yeah. but, but, but the point is, it's clearly not something that is part of what they value in meat. So what that means for us is that that the critical thing is to make a product that outperforms in the way that meat lovers uh, care about, mostly flavor, protein, iron, uh, mm-hmm. and affordability. Where in the world can you get an Impossible Burger right now? Burger King's in Missouri. I definitely see them around the San Francisco Bay Area. You guys started at Momofuku in New York, right? Where else we can you started, get one? We started at uh, sort of very high-end restaurants that um, are run by chefs who are particularly noted for their meat. They're known as you know meat chefs, and that would be, you know, uh, um, in uh, New York City, Dave Chang, who's like you know, one of the hardest core meat guys around. In the Midwest, we had Michael Simon, who had recently published a cookbook called Carnivore. And we did that basically because the most important thing we needed to communicate to consumers right out of the box is that this is an uncompromisingly delicious meat, not a veggie burger. But we wanted to get mainstream as fast as possible. And, um, you know, we're going into retail later this year, so consumers will be able to have this experience that's literally mind-blowing. That's kind of what makes chefs mm-hmm. fall in love with our product when they try it, is that it does something that no one has ever seen a planned product do before, which is it, it does the same sort of magical transformation that meat does when you cook it. Um, but in terms of where you can find it right now, um, right now it's in Burger King in St. Louis, um, our hope is, and and we're reasonably confident that this will happen, that it will go nationwide um, sometime around the middle of the year. And it's in White Castle, it's in uh, which is mostly on the East Coast, but there you can buy an Impossible slider for a buck ninety nine. Then we're also in Red Robin, which is um, our, right. right now actually our biggest uh, customer with five hundred plus stores. 
and um, Umami Burger, The Counter. Um, and then just a bunch box. of individual restaurants around large cities. Yeah, most of our current customers are, are just relatively small operators that have a single unit or a small number of, uh, of units. Are you getting any pushback from big beef industry yet, or are you guys too small still? Yeah, I mean, are they, are they not happy with the word burger? I, I guess that's already kind of a lost cause. But what is, what is the pushback from the beef industry? It's interesting because um, they have very limited tools. They have a lot of political clout, but basically, since we're not going out there and, and picketing you know, ranchers and, and slaughterhouses, we're approaching this by creating a new product and then letting consumers choose. And it's basically not um, – uh, this is not an attack on the meat industry. It's creating an alternative, and consumers will pick the winners, basically. And that's a very hard thing to fight against politically. The one thing that they're trying to do is to put restrictions on what we can call our products. Is there a specific word they don't want you to use? Well, I don't want to speak, speak for them. They're, they're, they've, they've I think introduced... meat is something that I did read that they don't like the use of that word in particular, Yeah. Yeah. And, and our feeling is, look, you know, uh, the, the, the laws can restrict what we call it, but they can't restrict what consumers call it. Mm-hmm. And whatever we call it, consumers are going to call it meat and call it a burger. And that's what matters. It reminds me of conflict diamonds versus lab-grown diamonds. <laughs> right. And Everyone wants to claim, claim, the, uh, claim the turf. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. So, you know, Impossible Burgers still do rely on kind of totalitarian agricultural practices, you know, and, and growing, it relies on soy, which is a monocrop that isn't good for the environment when it's grown at massive quantities either. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that, on just the fact that it, you can't really escape um, harmful ecological practices or agricultural practices when you're when you're trying to produce at scale? Well, that's not really true. I mean, I would say that um, at the moment, um, we are too small a company to be able to dictate what um, raw materials are grown. We have to um, use the materials that are grown at scale to make our product. And we don't, uh, you know, most of the crops that are grown at at scale are um, actually grown for Animal agriculture, most of the corn and soybeans in the world are, are, are grown to feed animals. A tiny fraction of those things ever get consumed um, by, by humans. But we're not, what we're doing is not um, endorsing, you, you, were, you called it a totalitarian agriculture. I love that phrase. I'm not sure what it means, but, but it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty catchy. But, you know, and when you talk about monocropping, I mean, is lettuce a monocrop? Is t- t- tomatoes a monocrop? I mean, the thing about monocropping is that there are these these huge crops that are grown in vast bulk to feed animals. That's that's the problem. Uh-huh. Um, we're doing work right now, looking at some entirely new sources of plant protein that are better environmentally uh, and have a lot of advantages and ingredients. But nobody's growing them uh, right now because um, you know the agricultural system doesn't take orders from us. And, um, but when we're at scale, it's, we're very actively thinking about building more robust agricultural system, precisely not depending on any single or small number of crops, um, because it makes it, uh, risky. It is a food security problem. If a significant fraction of the world's food and protein supply and so forth is coming from a small number of crops, 
um, if there's a, a, an outbreak of a pest that attacks those crops and so forth, it's a food security catastrophe. Right. Okay, this is our last question for you. I know you're still small, but do you have an estimate of how many cows you've saved so far? Um, it's over 10,000. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's probably approaching 20,000, and by the end of the year, it will be highly likely more than 100,000. Um, cows that have been saved. And um, we have saved CO2 emissions. You know, every time someone picks an impossible burger uh, over the cow-derived version, they save the equivalent of uh, about eight miles of driving in a typical American car. So that adds up very quickly when we're selling, you know, millions of burgers as we are. So we're saving vast amounts of land, water, CO2 emissions, uh, fertilizer use and associated uh, runoff pollution, pesticide use, and cows. All right, Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Kashmir, what tab did you leave open this week, or what would you recommend, rather, that that people check out? (laughs) Well, there was a piece in The Atlantic. It was actually last month called Airbnb Has a Hidden Camera Problem by Sydney Fussell. Mm -hmm. And then just a couple days ago, uh, I have opened in a tab a CNN story about a family in Ireland who, you know, checked into their Airbnb, and then um, the father, I guess, is a technologist because he scanned the Wi-Fi network Mm -hmm. just to make sure there's nothing, you know, unexpected connected to it. start doing this, yeah. And, yeah, basically everyone who uses Airbnb, you should start doing this. He discovers a internet-connected camera that is indeed connected to the network and live-streaming them. And so the family immediately, you know, reported this to Airbnb, you know, complained about it, went, checked in somewhere else. And, you know, Airbnb, I don't think, super acted on it until it became a media story. Um, But, yeah, I'm just basically anytime. I mean, I use Airbnb a lot. I really like it with a child. It's nice to have, like, multiple rooms instead of just a hotel room. But I am freaked out every single time that there's a camera hidden somewhere watching me. Is this legal or is this part of their policy? I don't know legal is the right word. But is this this kosher in Airbnb's world? I mean, Airbnb says that if it's disclosed in the listing that there, you know, is a camera in the house, then it's okay. Um, But they shouldn't have, you know, hidden cameras or cameras that are going to you know, catch you in a state of undress or an intimate space like in a bedroom. And it definitely is illegal to, you know, secretly 
film people, mm-hmm. even if they're in your house, I think, though I haven't I haven't really seen this litigated yet. Right, right. And this wasn't was this like streaming online somewhere? Uh, I don't think I don't think okay. it was streaming online. Okay. Okay. Though crazily, um, I did see an article yeah. about how in South Korea, I did see that this is like a huge countrywide problem of people just having finding hidden cameras and live streaming them. There were um, a bunch of people who got together and had this like thousand person strong march with the with mm-hmm. the message my life is not your porn because apparently it just happens there all the time um yeah which is my my nightmare oh my gosh yeah I, I just I mean so cameras are already everywhere outside mostly private security cameras not state-owned um although uh police often have agreements with uh companies that have private, that own a security camera so they, they can get uh, that feed. But this is different. This seems to be people who are kind of running cameras for entertainment, not for security. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's somebody who's just like, oh, I'm going to have a bunch of strangers in my home. I want to know what they're up to. I want to know if they, you know, throw a party or have more guests than they're supposed to have. And so those people sometimes might have a camera that's hopefully just outside. Um, mm-hmm. Or they might have one in their living room, which has certainly happened. But there's definitely some creepier cameras that are hidden, you know, in uh, like smoke detectors above the bed. So, uh, so I also have an unnerving tab this week, um, but but less creepy and more like, why would you do this? Uh, and it is from CNBC. It's entitled Billionaire Jack Dorsey's 11 Wellness Habits from No Food All Weekend to Ice Baths. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's uh, definitely he, he he spoke on a podcast recently kind of going through his life hacks, wellness routines. And it's just like I barely have the time to make it to the gym. I try, but it just doesn't happen as much as I would ever like. I couldn't imagine what it's like to have a kid and also <laughs> try to do that. Although some of my friends do try and are as unsuccessful as I am without a kid. <laughs> um, but uh, but but Jack Dorsey meditates every day. Okay, got it. But he only eats one meal a day, <laughs> apparently. He takes an ice bath every night. Um, he walks to work every day when he goes to work and back. So we're talking like hours and hours of wellness here, right? Do you think he's just trying to punish himself for creating Twitter? <laughs> Maybe. And, I, you know, and I was curious hearing that, you know, one meal a day, like I don't eat a meal and I'm just kind of, I get a little testy and, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like if he tried eating, you know, a sandwich, if that would maybe <laughs> help him make Twitter better, right? If he would maybe have a little more focus to uh, to make it less awful. <laughs> I don't know. It could help. I mean, if you're running a a crazy uh, warren of uncontrollable activity like Twitter, maybe it's uh, very satisfying to be able to rigidly control things in your own life. I don't know. Sure. If you're a billionaire, you can afford to have people helping you in such a way that you can kind of take this time off to, like, I don't know, go grocery shopping or do all the things I rush to do between, you know— work and and needing to actually sleep and eat and stuff like that, right? Um, But I recommend reading it just because it's kind of a uh, or just like checking it out, not only because it's funny <laughs> um, and impressive, but also uh, it's just like, oh, wow, this is how billionaires who run our communications platforms, or at least this one billionaire that's running this one communication platform that at least gives me a headache. Um, this is how he finds peace in his life, <laughs> even if he's running a product that doesn't necessarily create a lot of peace in other people's lives. I just thought it was like, oh, OK, this is this is what he does. And he, oh, he fasts all weekend, tracks his sleep. Um, it doesn't sound that chill, honestly. 
<laughs> yeah, I do. I do think there's such a thing as the over quantified self, right? Where right. you get a little too obsessed with the metrics, um, and I don't think that that is healthy either. Well, um, well, that does it for our show this week. Uh, Kashmir, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks uh, for inviting me. <laughs> I hope you guys liked our interview with uh, Impossible CEO. <laughs> uh, that is not something that's on either of our feeds, but we thought it would be fun to, to go off track and, and think about this incredibly big problem of what are we going to do about the environment. And one of the big uh, threats to the environment is, of course, meat consumption. Uh, please send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow myself on Twitter. I'm at April Laser, And you can follow Kashmir. She's Cash Hill. Uh, thanks to our guest, Pat Brown, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. And thanks to everyone who has left a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. You can find Kashmir Hill's work at Gizmodo. Thanks also to Jonah Strauss at Survivor Sound here in Oakland, California. And we will see y'all next week.